Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before... Oh, God damn it. You guys just won't stop tweeting at me today. But I'm happy to receive it. I'm happy to receive... In fact, you, one of you guys, will be receiving something from me today, and that is a Risk t-shirt, because I just mailed it. And guess what I used for postage? Stamps.com. Because right now... I can think of no bigger waste of my time than having to go to the post office on a practically daily basis. Come, ridiculous. In fact, there's a lot more mailing that should have been being done before that is being done now, now that I'm doing stuff through stamps.com. And you should be doing it, too. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print exact postage for any letter or package right from your desk using the free digital scale they send you. But Stamps.com will also save you money. It's a fraction of the cost of a postage meter. You get discounts you can't find at the post office. All you got to do is use our promo code RISK for a no-risk trial. I know that's strange. Uh, plus $110 bonus offers. That includes the digital scale and $55 of free postage. So go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on that little radio microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in R-I-S-K and get going. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is The Heap, behind me now, H-E-A-P. We're calling today's episode Fraught, uh, as in these three stories are so fraught with 
Frotology. And maybe even frottage. I would say it could frotten even the stoutest of personages. So get your personages ready for Mr. Brent Sullivan, such a dear friend of mine. Uh, he was recently written up in the New York Times as being a stand-up comedian to be on the lookout for. And now when I was a kid, I thought that the whole world was divided between Allison's and Sullivan's. Because the people next door were the Sullivans. And I thought that Allison's were God-fearing people who very healthily drank milk. And that Sullivan's didn't even say grace before dinner and got to drink all the Pepsi their hearts could desire. So I'm still a little suspicious of most of these Sullivan types. But this one so far seems to be a pretty good egg. Here he is live at the Risk Show in New York City. This is Brent Sullivan with a story we call No Use Crying. Uh, so I, I, I want to tell you about uh, the time in which I cried most recently. Uh, but to get there, I figured we probably should start at the very beginning. Uh, so I will tell you about uh, me as a kid. I was um, like a very emotional kid, and that manifested itself in that I cried constantly uh, as a child. Um, like, I, it focused on the fact that I hated being disconnected from my mom for any length of time, regardless of the circumstances. So I would do whatever it would take to be reunited with her again. Like, remember those kids who came to school in first grade, like, just to throw up? <laughs> that was me. Um... I remember having a conversation once. Uh, I was in first grade, and uh, my grandfather had just died. Uh, and my grandfather was a pretty shitty guy. No one really liked him very much. Uh, he, was a, he was an alcoholic and, and abusive. So when he died, it really didn't significantly impact the family. But I remember driving to school, and my mom asked me, you know, how are you, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And I said, well, I'm relieved because when I cry in class today, at least I'll have a reason. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget, my mom said, okay, why don't you try not crying in class today? <laughs> I was like, no thanks. <laughs> and, and this continued throughout my, in, my entire childhood. Uh, the first year, in which I didn't cry at school at some point during the school year was senior year of high school. <laughs> like, I remember being at like my high school graduation and not knowing what I was more proud of, graduating from high school or the fact that I didn't break down in a stairwell that year at some point uh, during school. Um, 
So I, I guess, and that's also continued uh, mostly into my uh, my adulthood. I will give you a couple other examples of how I uh, can at times be emotionally unstable. Um, I once found out that uh, that my neighbor's dog had died, and uh, I creeped everyone out, including my parents, by crying more than the neighbors. <laughs> I, in, in all fairness, I do have an unhealthy attachment to literally every single dog I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, case in point, the closest I ever came to a fist fight was on the Upper East Side when a guy wouldn't let me pet his dog. <laughs> I once cried at a women's prison. Um, (laughs) Senior year of college, I facilitated a creative writing discussion at a women's prison near my university. And I figured on the last day it would be fun to bring in the giving tree and read it to everyone. And and we we could have like a fruitful discussion about what it means. I don't even know what the fuck that means, but... uh, I knew that this book was emotional and made me sort of get teary-eyed, so I, I read it every single day for a week so I would be desensitized by the time I read it in front of the prisoners. So anyway, when I ended up breaking down in front of them, I, I still remember one of the prisoners saying, what the fuck is going on? I once cried during a job interview. Um, uh, it, uh, it had been a very long day, and, uh, and the woman doing the interview uh, kind of looked like my grandmother, um, who was still alive at the time. I don't, I don't know why that was such a big deal, but... It was. It was a big deal. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, my life just sort of, uh, you know, continued like this, and I moved, I moved to New York. Um, and I, I guess it shouldn't be... Well, it was just something that was a part of me, and I wasn't too embarrassed to be a relatively effusive guy when it came to emotions. So it shouldn't be too much of a surprise when um, I realized recently that almost overnight, I just, like completely stopped crying. Like, I stopped crying, like, completely. I, I went from, like, crying whenever my neighbor's dog had died to, like, never crying. Like, I, I made it through the cove without crying. Um, I watched uh, the death montage at the Oscars without crying. Uh, and the telltale sign that I knew something was wrong was that my childhood dog died. And when my parents called... It just didn't really affect me very much. I was, of course, sad as anyone would be, but I was like, you know, he lived a, you know, he lived 14 years, and and uh, and thus his life. And I think my parents were just as alarmed as I was that um, that that I didn't take it a little bit more harshly. So I began to introspect into what may have caused me to become so much more stoic uh, with my life, and so I started looking at different avenues of my life that sort of frustrated me. Um, one of them was politics. I follow politics like very closely I do it every day like when I wake up in the morning I just it just you know I check 
Politico.com, Polster, 538, Huffington Post, porn, and then I start over again, but... <laughs> I, I gotta, get, gotta get porn in there. Um, and politics are the worst. Uh, I happen to be a pretty liberal guy. Uh, in fact, I one time uh, refused to go on a second date uh, with a guy whose roommate was a Republican. <laughs> That was it, just his roommate. I'm like, no, fuck you, see you later. I also wondered, B, I wondered if living in New York was beginning to take its toll on me, because of course New York is stereotyped as this really cold, harsh place, and it really isn't. People aren't that unfriendly or weird, but I, I wondered if just kind of, if I was just kind of becoming a, a, a harder guy or something. And also, see, I'm a, I'm a comedian, I do stand-up, and um, stand-up comedy is just, constant habitual failure in, in every regard. Even when you're doing well, even, even when you're having like the best show of your life, you can still see faces of people who just don't like you. <laughs> in fact, uh, there's a couple here tonight, and uh, I don't appreciate it. Um, so it was also uh, around uh, this time, I, I wasn't really sure if any of those were the reasons why I stopped crying, but it was also around this time that... Um, I started going to therapy, uh, not, not because I had stopped crying, obviously, um, but because I've been single for about uh, 28 years, and, um, and <laughs> I, I noticed, I noticed that, that, do you ever see someone uh, who's so attractive that like, you kind of want them to die? Um, <laughs> I, I, I found that when I would see someone who I found attractive, my first instinct was to hate them. Uh, and, and so I was like, you know, let me just, I, I don't think I'm crazy, but let me go to therapy and talk to another person uh, just to find out, just to make sure, because I, I would rather know now than, you know, you know, turn like 38 or something and look back and realize that I, I was fucking crazy. And that's why I had been single my whole life. So I was in therapy one day, and I was trying to explain the whole attractive people killing, dying thing, uh, and she wasn't getting it. Uh, and she said, my therapist made the suggestion that I should rent uh, Brokeback Mountain, um, which was, yeah, I know, that was kind of cliche uh, for, her to, for her to suggest. Um, but I, I rented it, and I watched uh, the movie, and I made it, it's a, it's a sad film, but I made it about... Uh, I made it like 30 minutes in, and then I just started like sobbing. This is two weeks ago. I just started like sobbing. Um, and I realized that it wasn't because the movie is sad, and, which it is, but it, it wasn't because of that. It was because when I first saw that film in college, I watched it with like this youthful optimism that some, at some point in my life, I would be in a relationship like that that I would be kind of swept off my feet, where I would find someone who was so exciting and thrilling that regardless of our backgrounds or whatever, we would just kind of be enmeshed together for you know, the rest of our lives. And I realized while watching that film as a 28-year-old, that side of me had completely died. And that I was almost, I was almost mourning, the, I was almost mourning sort of the youthful optimism part of, uh, part of me uh, while watching it. So. That was only a couple weeks ago, but I, I guess I've hit a pretty good equilibrium when it comes to emotionality. I've struck a, a pretty happy medium. I'm trying to perfect being emotional without being quite so unhinged as I was uh, earlier in my life. Although I, I would like to do it sooner rather than later. 
because I have a couple uh, job interviews coming up, and I've, <laughs> I've run out of grandparents to use as a crutch. Uh, so thank you very much. That's, uh, that's it. Thanks. I'm 14 years old. It's 1983, and I'm going to meet my friends Sarah and Ian, and we're going to shoplift some makeup. So it's Saturday morning, and I'm supposed to meet them in Uptown Minneapolis. And to get to Uptown from my house, you transfer through downtown. And in downtown, there's a giant Woolworths, and I'm gonna get a leg up on them. So I go into Woolworths with my shorts with strategically large pockets on, and I just start picking through lipsticks and putting them in my pockets. And I got a fairly full pocket, and I head to the door. And there's a grab. I turn around, and it's a man in a double-knit polyester pants, a gross button-up short-sleeve shirt, and he says, come with me, and he parades me through the Woolworths, downstairs into an office, and sits me down, and I'm like, I'm 14, what are you going to do to me? And he says, empty your pockets, and there they are, lipstick, 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 a few mascaras, mostly lipstick. I'm busted. And he has me sign this paper that says I won't come to Woolworths for a year. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I won't come to Woolworths for a year. And then he says, I'm going to call the police. I'm like, I'm 14. What are they going to do? And he calls the police, and the police show up, and they parade me through the Woolworths in this ritual of humiliation that doesn't really register and they bring me out into the car and it's a man cop and a lady cop and the man cop is the bad cop and the lady cop is the good cop and it's very stereotypical and the man cop ducks my head into the car and they shut the door behind me and they get in and I realize this is it I start to panic and I start to cry and I ask them are you going to call my parents? And I can see the big lug man cop in the rearview mirror roll his eyes, and I know. And I just start panicking. I just start to cry, and I just start to wail. And the lady cop turns around and says, Is everything all right? Are you going to be okay? I don't answer. I just keep crying. And they bring me the few blocks to this 
little jailhouse thing and they read me the rights and I keep crying and I'm wailing and I'm wailing and she keeps saying, is everything all right? And they put me into this steel jail cell and I'm wailing and wailing at the top of my lungs in the fear. To say my father had a temper... When things went wrong, dishes were broken, uh, ribs were broken. My sister has a skin graft on part of her back of her head. It wasn't something we talked about the times when things happened like I made a mess somewhere, and then I argued and sassed, and it turned into this, I'm going to hit you until you bleed. And so you learn to lunge your nose into the fist because a bloody nose is the easiest way to go. My family doesn't talk about it now, but they didn't talk about it then, and my mother always pretended it wasn't happening. And I'm in the jail cell, and I'm crying, and I'm crying, and I'm wailing, and I'm just wearing myself out, and it's just hours and hours in this jail cell, and I don't know what lies ahead of me. The door opens, it's the lady cop, she walks me back into the room where they read me those rights, both of my parents are there, there's some conversation about how this is a warning, they took me down, we got into the car, halfway through the half hour ride home, my father said, we talked about it, and the embarrassment is punishment enough. So you're not grounded. And I'm confused, but a wash of relief is over me, and that was it. Years later, I'm in my mid-twenties. It's some holiday. My mom is in the kitchen with me. It's just the two of us. And there's some weird heart-to-heart -heart talk. And I ask about why I, I got off so easy when I was caught shoplifting. And she looks up and says, that lady cop brought us into a room and shut the door behind us and said, I don't know what goes on in your house, but this should be punishment enough. And then my mother looked up, and she gave me this look. It was the closest my mother ever came to admitting how bad it was.
This is Risk. After Mr. Brent Sullivan, we heard a song by Jeff Barr called In the Namby Pamby Grove. And we heard a story by a recent student at thestorystudio.org. She is a neo-burlesque performer here in New York City, Miss Frankie Fellini, with a story we call Punishment Enough. Well, folks, we are really thrilled to announce that this episode of Risk is sponsored by Merge Records, featuring artists such as the Grammy Award Album of the Year winner, The Arcade Fire, who you're hearing behind me now, as well as M. Ward, The Mountain Goats, Divine Fits, Spoon, Super Chunk, Bob Mould, Red Cross, and much, much more. I'm especially excited because I've been a Merge fan for years. Uh, this is one of the greatest labels to come out of my generation, and they're still putting out awesome stuff consistently. It's great to be able to go to a label's website and say, well, what have they come out recently with? Because it's always great stuff. Go to mergerecords.com slash store to preview and purchase their latest albums on LP, digital download, CD. You can find them on Twitter and Facebook at Merge Records. And you can sign up for their monthly newsletter at mergerecords.com. I'm also super excited about our next guest. We've been trying to get him on the show for years. Uh, he is <laughs> the one-of-a-kind, the creative dynamo, Mr. Reggie Watts. Uh, you can Reggie's got a, a recent album and DVD out called Live at Central Park. You know, his usual medium is music, so it was an especial thrill to hear him share a personal story live at the Risk Show in New York City. This is Mr. Reggie Watts with a story we are naming after the song that was number one the week I was born. Thank you for letting me be myself again. All right, um, this, is a, this is a story about a young man and some drugs. Um, the young man is me. Not anymore, but I used to be a very young man, incredibly young. Uh, <laughs> very young. One of the youngest men you've ever met. But um, I, I don't know how many of you guys are kind of extroverted, but you find that they're like some like some things that you're really uptight about, like still, like, I, like and some hidden things that you don't find out until certain kind of crucial moments. But in this particular situation, I would have been uh, about 27, I think, 27. I was working in a health food store called Mother Nature's uh, in Seattle, Washington, on the base of Queen Anne Hill. And um, I had just quit a disco cover band. Uh, <laughs> I was making shitloads of money. I mean, like, we were making, I mean, at the time, as a young man, any amount of money is a lot of money, but um, enough to buy my friend's Chianti once in a while. Um, so I was rolling the Chianti, but, I, but, I, I, but at a certain point, I was like, I was with a girlfriend, she was Australian, and she was telling me, um, you know, 
uh, you should really quit this band. And I was like, I don't know, man. I mean, it's making a lot of money, but it's definitely not creative. I learned, I know every single disco song, I think, now. So I, I, it took me a while before I even enjoyed them again. But um, I, I quit that band, and it was kind of a heavy breakup uh, with the band because, you know, I'd been with it since uh, it started. Like, uh, I think it was in it for about five years or something like that. And so I quit that, and I went from making money to zero money. So I had to get a job, and I got lucky to get this job at Mother Nature's. Um, totally like ma and pa run, um, little joint, and um, no competition at the time. And, and I just learned about vitamins, and I stocked things, and I priced things, and I made sandwiches and smoothies with spirulina and made kombucha from scratch. And, uh, you know, I learned about, uh, you know, biodynamics and, uh, you know, uh, St. John's wort, uh, you know, working as an antidepressant. And we had representatives coming in from vitamin companies. And it was, a, it was an intense time. <laughs> <laughs> and and I broke up with the girl from Australia. She went to Japan and she said she was dancing and she would send these pictures of her in these kind of weird outfits where she was almost topless and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." Okay, yeah, kind of like Vegas thing. And then then she writes me a letter saying that she'd been seeing someone and uh and in a weird way I was kind of relieved. I was like, okay, great, because I wasn't sure about that relationship anyways, so that was an easy out. And it was still emotional, but you know, I, I was living in the house that we were living in together uh, by myself while she was in Japan, so we'd broken up. So I was single, and I was working at the health food store, and one day, this girl walks in, really super cute girl. At the time, she probably would have been 21 or something like that. And uh, she walks in, she's a friend of one of the people working there, and uh, she's talking and I'm kind of joking around with her and I don't know, we're hitting it off and she's like, hey, you want to uh, come by where I work, you know, sometime this week? And I'm like, sure. So, um, so I go to this health food restaurant that's run by this old hippie dude in a weird part of Seattle and I go to visit her and she's, she's closing shop and she gets me a couple, you know, their specialties or whatever, like yeast, yeast soup or something like that. Um, and uh, just great um, and uh, and so you know <laughs> we sit down at a table and we're just we're chatting or whatever and she's like uh, I've got some mushrooms I'm like oh yeah that sounds cool I didn't really know her so it was kind of a weird thing I always associate mushrooms you know with something you do with like close friends so I was like uh, yeah sure that sounds cool she's like we'll have to stop by my house that I'm living at I'm like great so she gets done with work says goodbye to this this dude we get into her car and we drive to this weird house in another part of Seattle again that I can't even remember where it is anymore. It's just a very strange place. And it was this big-ass house on this property, and he went in as total hippie commune house. Like, hardly any furniture, just a lot of blankets and pillows everywhere, you know? <laughs> like, cubby holes with strange herbs hanging down in bushels from the ceiling and dream catchers and, and um, just communal kitchen, you know? Um, and uh, we kind of hung out a little bit there, we got the mushrooms, and we decided to go to the Arboretum, which is this uh, beautiful park in Seattle, if you ever get a chance to go to it. It's a man-made uh, <laughs> uh, botanical extravaganza. Um, and we decided to go there. It's, it's starting to get dark, and the park is closed. So we sneak in, we park our car on the edge of the park, and we walk in. She's got these mushrooms, and we eat the mushrooms with some M&M's. It's always the best way to do it. Just take a handful of M&M's and a handful of mushrooms. You'll never taste it. And, um, 
So we did the mushrooms, and I was a little nervous because I didn't really know her, and that's always an odd feeling when you're doing something like really heavy and psychedelic and psychotropic um, with someone you don't know that well. It could not necessarily be a good thing. So we we start to trip a little bit, and I'm like feeling okay, a little estranged from her, but you know, okay. We find she she well, I think we find it collectively, but we find this tree. It's the weirdest tree. It's like a pine, looks like a pine tree. It is a pine tree. Um, I've just decided. No, um, but it's like some, some, some kind of a pine tree. And it, the branches started about here. So it formed this nice little like tent, like a, like a little tree cave, like a, you know. So we're like under this tree's skirt, you know, just kind of up against, you know, the trunk of, of the tree. And I started tripping out a little bit more, a little bit more. And then for some reason, I just ended up laying my head in her lap and she was sitting against the tree. And I kind of just fell into a trip. And I, it started with her breathing and my breathing. And eventually, that turned into this weird journey into this hyper-feminine world. And I, it, it's really hard to explain, but it's like... <laughs> it, it was like... It was like I was like temporarily allowed to kind of feel a little bit of the feminine energy, and my head was right against her stomach, so it was kind of like against her womb, and uh, and it was heavy, man. Like I just went on this crazy journey, and I was like started to get really emotional, and and was crying a little bit, and, and uh, but she was totally cool about it. She was like just kind of handling it and she was tripping too so we were kind of co-tripping um, and I was somewhere lost in some strange beautiful energetic female realm um, and I stayed there for about maybe a little over an hour and I got up uh, slowly and kind of realized vaguely where I was and we just looked at each other and we just like started crying um, so in that moment, it just felt very honest and clean. Like every breath I took just felt like I was getting nutrition from the air. And us being in each other's presence was kind of letting me know that it's possible to connect with people even though you, you may not know them. This, this particular trip kind of ended with us roaming around the forest, doing some weird shit. Um, <laughs> hiding from each other, um, you know, running around giggling. Um, and then um, eventually trying to find her car. And, uh, but the best part about that whole trip was we became better friends and kind of quasi-dated, but then, like only really two dates and just became really good friends. And uh, maybe a year, year, year and a half later, I went over to her house and we tripped on mushrooms again. And it was just me and her in this house that she lived in in Capitol Hill. And uh, <laughs> I had a, have a problem. I mean, I'm sure a lot of us have a problem with going to the bathroom, especially number two, when you know that people can hear you <laughs> uh, or, or any, <laughs> anything like that. You just have a, I just have this problem. I like to be in a very quiet, private space, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and meditate. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, so I had to go to the I had to go to the bathroom, and I had to go pretty badly quickly because mushrooms sometimes can make you slightly incontinent, um, and also out of continent as well. But um, 
so, uh, so I just remember going like, I have to go to the bathroom. And I go to her bathroom and I remember, I just get deathly afraid because I remember as I'm approaching the bathroom door, there is no door. It's just a bunch of like beads. Because again, she's like living in a commune hippie thing. And, um, and I'm totally terrified because her roommate is supposed to come home at some point during the evening. And, but he's, you know, he's a kind dude, um, I guess. I don't know. That's how he was described to me. Um, and, and I was like, I can't do this. And she, she took the time. This is so, so stupid. It was such a huge thing. She took the time to actually just, she just made it sound like it's no big deal. Just do this. We all do this. It's fine. I'm not going to fucking touch you about just go to the bathroom, whatever. It's what you're supposed to be doing. It's a healthy thing. And I was like, no, no, I can't. No, no one, no one must know that I do this. I am ashamed. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and she just kind of, she was like, listen, I'm going to go out in the yard. It's going to be fine. And it took me a while. It took me probably about like, like half an hour of being like, like thinking that any noise was like her roommate coming in at, or her coming back into the house to check on me. But finally, at one point, I just hear, I just hear her scream in the backyard. She's like, just do it. <laughs> and then I went for it and uh, I kind of just, I don't know. I don't know. Something happened. I, I, I did it. It was fine. I felt kind of weird, but then I was like, no, it's cool, it's cool. No, no, no it's cool, it's cool. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, finished up. And then, uh, and I came out and I felt like a changed person. Like I felt like I had like walked across coals or something like that. I, I, and like everything changed. I was, I was like, thank you. I, was, I felt incredibly indebted to her. It's crazy. It was like the second time that she kind of just allowed me, she fully accepted me and allowed me to be who I was. And that's a huge feeling because you just don't know how much you aren't being yourself until certain moments happen. So that's it. Thanks. <laughs> You take some shit, put it up on the wall, check it out for a while. You take that shit up off of the wall, put it down on the floor in a glass bowl. You take some fuck, put it up on the wall where the shit used to be. You take that fuck up off of the wall, put it down on the floor with the shit in a glass bowl. 
What? Yo, here's another little piece of advice. Fars. You take some fuck, then some shit, then some fuck, then some shit. You gotta fuck shit stack. A fuck shit stack. Take some fuck, then some shit, then some fuck, then some shit. You gotta fuck shit stack. A fuck shit stack. It's a stack of fuck shit on top of itself, nigga. That's it for this week, folks. This, of course, is Reggie Watts behind me now from his album Why Shit So Crazy. Do not forget, on September 7th, we are in Cambridge, Massachusetts with Jonathan Katz, Dr. Katz himself, and now also Steve Sweeney. And then the next day, we are in Albany, New York with Dave Hill. That's September 8th in Albany. And remember, you can find out about any of our live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. If you'd like to learn more about storytelling, we teach this stuff, too, at thestorystudio.org. We do customized workshops for business teams, one-on-one coaching over Skype, and workshops of varying lengths, uh, two-day workshops, nine-week workshops, for any and everybody. If you listen to the show regularly, you've probably noticed that now pretty much every episode features a story that first came about in one of our workshops. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show. You can follow me on Twitter at the Kevin Allison. And you can comment on the podcast at the iTunes page for Risk. And you can submit your own stories to us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Other than that, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I just don't give a fuck. You take some fuck, then some shit, then some fuck, then some shit. You got a fuck shit stack, a fuck shit stack. Take some fuck, then some shit, then some fuck, then some shit. You got a fuck shit stack, a fuck shit stack. Take some fuck, then some shit, then some fuck, then some shit. You got a fuck shit stack, a fuck shit stack. Take some fuck, then some shit, then some fuck, then some shit. You got a fuck shit stack, a fuck shit stack. It's a stack of fuck shit on top of itself, nigga. Yo, where my girls at? Where my girls? Where my grills at? Where my grills at? Where my girls at? Where my girls at? Where my grills at? Where my grills at? Where we fuck shit? Fuck shit? Fuck shit? Fuck shit? Fuck shit? Fuck Ha 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 